or it's not meant to pray, it would be read. Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay, so, in the Old Testament, actually not just the Old Testament, all of Scripture, there is very definitive and distinct language that is used for insiders and outsiders. People who are in the people of God in the Old Testament, and people who are outside. And those words are words like sinners, you know, outsiders. They're called sinners. Uh, they're called transgressors, evildoers, unrighteous, sometimes neighbors, sometimes all the people, sometimes nations, plural. Lots of different words uh, for them. And those words are not meant to be negative, necessarily. Not, but what happens by the time Christ comes and the early church is, is struggle, struggling in the ancient Near East is the words like that have stopped being uh, what they know, they're not so much de- designatory. They don't just designate something. They're actually moral terms. So to call somebody a sinner in Jesus's time, and you see this in the, in the Gospels, is a, a moral term saying, you're bad, we are good. So sinner, be- t- these outsider words, the language for those outside the people of God began to take on a very negative tone, very confrontational tone. We are better than them. And you see this all through Jesus's struggles in the, in the Gospels. But one thing that happens brilliantly in the New Testament especially, and listen, they're misusing those terms in the Old Testament as well, but what happens in the New Testament is a redeeming or at least a changing of that, word of the wording. So what ends up happening is Jesus starts to say, you know, sinners are not just those out there. You're all sinners. The church is filled with sinners. So he begins to redeem the term. The outsiders are only insiders by faith and by grace. They, they, you're not morally superior. And you see this beautifully in Paul, in, in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, when he says, um, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ came to rescue sinners, of whom I am the first, the protos. So in other words, Paul, in the present tense, he's speaking in Greek. So what he is saying is, as a Christian, saved and redeemed, I am yet a sinner. Simul justus et peccator, if you want to quote Martin Luther. So I'm all at once, simultaneously, just, justus, and peccator, sinner, at the same time. And so what we see Jesus doing and Paul doing, the New Testament doing, is saying, you've used this term sinners in a way God never intended. It's not about you being better. You're all sinners. And he starts to redeem that term entirely. So sinners in the New Testament, by the time you finish the book of Revelation, which we did last year, you find that sinner doesn't mean lawbreaker, but a sinner is now the person who rejects Christ. Because you're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. And that's what Jesus comes to make very clear. You're all sinners. The ones who are now outside of the family are simply those who've rejected Christ. Because sin is not the term anymore. Because you're all sinners. right? And that is important. Because here now what we have in this passage is Paul shifting gears. He spent from verse, chapter 3, verse 5 through to now speaking about what life should look like in the church how inside these walls we ought to live amongst one another. But then he shifts focus here and he says, for these four or five verses, he says, now, this is how you are to live with the world and in the world, how you are to engage, which is interesting. And why he puts it here is pretty fascinating because he spent the whole time saying, beware of false teaching. 
Be a protective group. Be united. Know your doctrine. Love one another. Serve one another. Remember the gospel because there's always false teaching wanting to come from the outside in. But then he reminds them that you cannot simply cocoon and avoid the world. You must also, all at the same time, preserve the faith in this, this building, but also engage the world outside of the building. You can't neglect one. You can't, uh, I've used it before, it's when you call um, hypothermia. What hypothermia does when you get really cold is all the warmth retreats into the core to keep your body alive, to keep the, the organs alive. But you do that at the risk of the appendages. Everything else starts to get frostbite and die. And so the church that wants to cocoon in and say, the world is a mess. I've been watching CNN. I've been watching Fox News. I see how terrible the world is. You know, that sort of a church that cocoons becomes a miserable place to be. Miserable place. Because all they care about is keeping alive, not about reaching out. And Paul doesn't want the church in Colossae to become that. And so he reminds them, yes, you have to protect doctrine, but you cannot do that to the neglect of the world. You must engage. And this is what he's starting to do here. He's starting to show, and I'm going to break all the rules here on Father's Day. It's a two-point sermon. There's only two, not three. He says, there's basically, you, you, we as a church engage the world indirectly and directly. Indirectly through prayer, and that's, I don't like saying that because prayer is pretty direct, but you'll see what I mean. Um, and directly through participation, being actively, personally involved physically. But we'll get to those one by one. So let's start with first one, indirect through prayer. One of the things I, probably the best example of this I've ever heard of how prayer and what Paul might be getting at here comes from a pastor who was, was a pastor, I guess he's retired now, in Minnesota named John Piper, quite well known. And he says, think of this this way. He says, one of the reasons your prayer life as Christians is so terrible at times or so weak is because we have turned a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. And, when, and I don't love wartime analogies because they tend to become militant, understandably. But I think he makes a point, and he says this. You know, think of Colossians in this way. God has set out an offensive in the world to bring the gospel to bear in the sinful world. However, there's been a counteroffensive by the world, and it has done pretty well and has now captured many key people in God's army. One of them is Paul. Paul's a POW. But he manages to smuggle a letter out of the POW camp to the fellow soldiers nearby, and it's to the Colossian church. And he encourages them here, you're to take this letter. And in that letter, what he says is, we're in prison. Here's how you, you have to get on your walkie-talkies and radio HQ for support. You have to now reach out to God because we're struggling here. And your job now is to support us indirectly by calling HQ because we can't, we're in prison. And muster all of their power and all their support to blow open a, a door so that we'll have room to recommence the offensive of bringing the gospel into the world. And if you look at it that way, what I do like about that is it talks about the urgency, that we don't have time to wait. If you think about it as war in that way, that God is taking ground, and we have people on the front lines, right? There, I mean, we all should be on the front lines, but there are folks who have taken up a calling and answered a call to be missionaries and pastors and preachers and apologists, whatever it is, um, and they're on the front lines taking direct fire, and they need support. And we who may be sometimes in the rear, sometimes in the front, our job is to pray, says Paul. And he gives us very simply here, he tells us in this first point, how we should pray and what we should pray for in those first two verses, verses two and three. So how we should pray, the first one is he says, be steadfast. Now, 
Here he is speaking steadfast. He's talking about the consistency of prayer, not the intensity of prayer. You know, we always want our prayer times to be moving mountains, right? We want to make it, we want to feel something. Um, And yet this is not, very rarely is that ever spoken about in scripture. Your emotions are very rarely spoken about as regards your relationship with God. Usually it's about be consistent, be steadfast. In fact, the word here is devoted, which is the word that's used in a number of occasions in the book of Acts, chapter 1, 14, 242, 6-4, all when, when, when Luke says that the church devoted themselves to prayer. And it's about being consistent. Continue to pray, pray. Because prayer, you see, God doesn't need to be manipulated, right? He doesn't need the intensity. He doesn't need lofty words. Because what we do sometimes, not if your lofty words in prayer come naturally, that's good. But Sometimes we confuse why we pray. We think we have to manipulate God. But remember, God dreamed up the kingdom. God started this war. He has won all the decisive battles. He's more committed to bringing it than you are. He doesn't need to be convinced to save Paul and to break open a door for the gospel. What he wants you to do is to continually pray because you're the problem here. Because you're the one, you and I are the ones who often don't rely on God. See, if you have a weak prayer life, and I'm not judging anyone because we all go through seasons, but there's people who've been Christians for a long time who never pray. And they flatter themselves, and I do it, listen, I'm guilty. We flatter ourselves to say, but in the car when I'm driving, I pray. And we think, that's, whew, I've done my job. I'm not knocking out, we should be praying in those moments. But when we have a weak prayer life, can I say very simply, and I do this to myself, so I'm not just picking, I don't know, I'm not picking on anybody here. If your prayer life is weak, it's because you trust something more than Christ. Because, uh, and we're going to see it in the next part when we, want to, in, when we get to thankful. But the more you don't think you need God, the less you think you have to call him. You see, think about the wartime analogy. You only get on the walkie-talkie to headquarters if you need their support. The problem is you're really under the impression you don't need the support. So we don't pray. So Paul says, be consistent in your prayer because it shows your dependence on him. We pray not because we want to to manipulate God. We pray because you have no choice. Prayer ought to come from a, a deep reservoir in us that tells us that we cannot live without praying. Right? Paul said that very clearly in chapter 1, verse 15. He sustains all things, but we don't often believe it. And so he says, be consistent, pray consistently, consistently, set time aside, because not only do you need it, but others need it. And we're going to see in a minute, he tells us to pray for others. So pray steadfastly. Second one he says is pray watchfully, be watchful in your prayer, he says. And here's that word, it means awake uh, or alert. Um, Some of your translations may even say alert, depending on what your English translation is. And that word is almost always used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' coming to be watching for Christ to return. Now, Paul may be saying here, hey, pray as if Christ is going to return tomorrow. Be attentive. But he may also simply be saying, not simply, but profoundly really saying, um, watch how you pray. Because how you pray can easily show the distractions of your heart. So here we are with the situation I just mentioned about what's going on in the life of the church. And those things tend to, tragedies and issues tend to reorient us, right? They bring us back to what is important. And all of a sudden, praying it doesn't rain for my barbecue is not so big a deal. And Paul is saying, it's not that God doesn't care about those things, but do you realize how easily you're distracted? Be watchful. Be alert. Watch your prayer time. If if you're a journaler, write down how you pray and what you pray for and start to see, boy, I, I mean, if I did that, 
there's a lot of times it's, it's pretty selfish. And this is why I love that part in the Gospels when Jesus says, God knows what you want. I have to, oftentimes I try to force myself to start prayer times by saying, God, you know exactly what I want and what I'm dying to pray for, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to starve that selfish side in me and I'm going to pray for someone else who needs it more because I have to trust you know. You know this. And so can we do that more? Can we be watchful? Third one, steadfast, watchful, and thankful. And this one is touched. There's a guy named Peter Berger. I think I have a picture of him. I don't know if I do. There he is. I, he may even be dead. He's a Christian, but he's a sociologist. I think he has a degree in New Testament as well. Brilliant guy. And he wrote a lot of books. One of them, I think, is called The Socially Constructed World. I don't remember. Read it a long time ago. But one of the things he says in this book as a Christian is um, humans in general are great at something he calls technique. And what he means is this. When we encounter a problem as humans, we address them and we, we fix them. If there is a problem of not enough food, well, we produce mass uh, farming. If there's a problem of water, well, we find desalinization plants or whatever. He says, you know, we're really good at solving our own problems. He says, the, in the world, that seems normal. But as a Christian, every time we answer a problem like that, it makes it harder for us to trust God because we continually are answering our own problems. And every time the doctor gives you a pill, that means you don't have to suffer the migraines any longer. That's praise God for that. But it means you no longer have to trust God through the pain or why it's come or, or anything. And so he, 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 he worries. And this is part of what I was mentioning earlier. Part, when the more we become accustomed to not needing God or thinking we don't, the less we pray. And, but do we really believe, verse 1, 15, when Paul says, he, or 7, 14, 14, I think. He says, in him, in Christ, all things hold together. If that's true, then we've just heard about a situation where a person passes away like that, sitting in their chair. Do you really believe it? Because if you believe Christ came and solved a problem you cannot solve, your sin problem, and he gave you the only way out of it, you will be thankful. If you're not thankful in any instance, and this is harsh, in any instance, there's a time for mourning, of course, but thankfulness ought to be, again, that reservoir, that reservoir of joy that we draw on at all times. And Paul's hammering that, saying, and throughout, he mentions thankfulness, I think, six or seven times in this short letter, that thankfulness is vital. And if we go back to that war analogy, then thankfulness comes from knowing that despite what we may see in the battle, HQ has everything under control, the progress is being made as it has to. All the decisive battles have been won. Golgotha, Gethsemane, those battles are won, right? They're won. We can then be thankful. And so if you get, pick up that walkie-talkie again in prayer, this is why we always thank God in prayer. Because we it may say, we're, we're taking heavy fire, but thank you that you heard. We're taking heavy fire, but thank you that you won this battle for us. And so thankfulness ought to be the base note that runs through everything we do, including our prayer time. So that's how prayer should be, right? It should be steadfast, watchful, and thankful. Now, what the content of that prayer should be is laid out in the very next verse, in verse 3. He says, pray for us, pray also for us, in verse 3. So here we're called very specifically to pray for frontline people. And now, listen, we all should be frontline to an extent. But like I said, there are missionaries out there who are on the front line. They're going to India, Pakistan, Niagara Falls, Rochester, wherever else they're going, and they're out there intentionally 
engaging people in conversation, not being passive and taking those conversations as they come, but instigating conversations, getting themselves inserted in communities and lives. And they need prayer. And Paul very carefully, not care, very clearly says he's in prison. Now we have to remember this. The reason he's in prison is because the gospel is dangerous. The reason the gospel is under attack today in Canada is because it is dangerous. And what I mean by that is it threatens everything. If, if the gospel is true, which of course it is, then it means that it threatens everything from our relationships, our identity, our governance, our justice, our morality. It, um, I have more written down. Everything. And because it gets there to the very core, it is dangerous, and the world will always want to lock it up. Always. And so it's dangerous. So he needs, Paul needs prayers. Our missionaries need prayer. The pastors need prayer. Everybody, they, we need prayers. We're engaging in this battle. Um, and those who are called to preach and serve need prayer. So they're facing the most direct fire. So we go and we pray for them specifically. So Paul says, first thing is our prayer should, the content of it should be often others. Not always. It's a time to pray for yourself, of course. But often others. That's one of the ways we engage indirectly. The second thing is opportunities. It's amazing that Paul says, you should pray that God may open the door to us for the word. He doesn't pray for the prison doors to be open for himself to leave. Right? He's not praying for an exit. In fact, Acts 16, when he is there with Silas, and they are praying in the, in the, in the um, Philippian jail, do you notice what happens? The doors are busted open, but Paul's not praying for the doors to open. He's worshiping. And here, he doesn't say, pray that I may be loosed from my chains to restart. He instead says, pray for opportunities for the gospel. And that is, shows his incredible commitment to it. But if you have that orientation we mentioned earlier, that you see who Christ is and what he has done, then it's easy to not look as, at your circumstances at first and instead start to say, Lord, I pray that you would blow open the doors for the gospel to be preached. Because what's most important is that people hear of the freedom of Christ, more so than my comfort. That's what Paul is saying, and it's radical. And so we pray for that. We pray that there be opportunities for our missionaries, this work team that's going up, for our kids in the schools, for the parents in the, the community groups or in the, in the church, uh, or sorry, the soccer teams around the region or in your workplaces, wherever it is. We pray, Lord, may there be opportunities for the gospel so that the gospel may be preached because it's vital. So opportunities. Third thing that's in the content of our prayer is clarity. He says, that he may be able to reveal and speak clearly about the gospel as I ought. It's interesting he says that, as I ought. Meaning, Paul sees it as a duty of his to preach the gospel, but not just preach it, but preach it clearly. And in fact, the word there is to reveal it. It's a word for reveal, revelation, to reveal it. And the reason is, the gospel is impossible to find without God. You cannot find Christ unless he reveals himself to you somehow. The gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. There's something that happens in which God works through the ministry of his people. So when we declare the gospel and share the gospel, it becomes clear somehow. So Paul prays for that clarity. But do you notice what he does? Think about um, what it means to reveal something. If I am speaking to someone who is a non-Christian, who has never stepped foot in church, I cannot expect as much fruit by simply yelling at them. I remember being on the streets in Toronto. If you've ever been downtown Toronto or any major city, there's always somebody on a, on a radio or a big thing just 
reading God, the words of the, the Bible, um, sometimes yelling fire and brimstone, depending what it is, but they're preaching. I had no problem with that. But I remember once seeing somebody getting into a debate, and it was a woman with a placard on, and it said, abortion kills babies, something to that effect. And then a woman engages her in, a di- in, a, in an argument on the street corner. Now, the Christian woman with a placard is saying everything biblically accurate about how it's abortion is not, God doesn't, love, doesn't like it, it's terrible, it's murder, all that, she's right on. The problem is, she's just yelling scripture after scripture at a woman who could care less about scripture, doesn't acknowledge its authority, doesn't even know what it says, and so as a result, the right wording, but the wrong language. And so it was yielding nothing, at least not very much. If, now, God can work, God can work. I don't know what God did there, so I'm not suggesting that it's impossible. But what we see Paul doing in his ministry and, and here is loving and caring about people enough to be students of the word and of the culture. If I go to India, I have to preach the gospel in a language and with a context they understand. Do you notice that Jesus, when he preaches, always speaks about, he doesn't talk about life in Persia. He doesn't talk about technology he would, would eventually known was coming. Instead, he takes work and family, and social mores, they understood, and he, he preaches the gospel to them in a context and in a language they'll understand. God shows up in the Bible as a burning bush, a still small voice, a tornado, a pillar of fire, a baby, all of these different contexts to different people, the same God, different context. Why? Because he cares enough about you to meet you where you need to be to, to hear him. And we then, says Paul, He says his job, he's been called to preach, to reveal the gospel. But how is he going to reveal the gospel to a secular humanist at Brock University? He needs to understand the secular humanist in Brock University. And same with us. So we have to be all at once students of the word, first and foremost, and of the culture. Because we're called to preach an unchanging gospel to a changing culture. And so Paul says, pray for the clarity because he's meeting all sorts of different people as you and I do. And how do you know how to switch like a Swiss army knife? What tool is needed to reach this person and that person and this person and that person? Ultimately, it's grace. Ultimately, it's the spirit. But he knows his part is to do everything he can to be as clear as he can, and he can't do it without your prayer. And so we pray for people who are having those conversations, not just the missionaries. Listen, I've said it before. I don't want to diminish the term because missionary is an important term. There is a place, and we need to recognize that. But we are all called to witness, all of us. And so how do we do that? I don't know your neighbor. You do. How do you get to know your neighbor specifically so that you can bring the gospel to them in a way that they're going to understand it? And Paul's saying, that's what we do. We pray for one another. I mean, think about this. Anyone here who's been a missionary, you always get, before you go into the field, you get cultural training. You get training about the language, the history, what they value, what they don't value, what to say, what not to say. I remember the mind-boggling, uh, just hearing of, um, wait, I was once, I, I filmed something that was going to be for, showed in the Middle East, okay, this, this evangelistic thing that was going to be on satellite radio, and I did the whole thing with my hand in my pocket, and they said, you got to stop doing that. Hand in your pocket is a great sign of disrespect in the Middle East. I'm like, oh my goodness, I know, for two hours I, I was doing this. Um, you always get cultural sensitivity training before you go into the field, and yet we think naively that you, you've been born and raised in Niagara Falls, in this area. You don't need training. Yeah, you do. Because the longer you're a Christian, without engaging the world, the less sensitive you are to the world's needs and what it thinks and believes. 
And so we need to do this. Be aware so we can be clear as we ought to be as we preach the gospel. So that is the content of prayer. So what we, how we pray is, oh my, I have to go back. So, uh, steadfast, watchful, thankful. What we pray for is for others, for opportunities and for clarity. And lastly, in the second point, is what is our direct participation? Now here is verses four, five, and six. Now, or say, uh, five, uh, yeah, five and six. Now, Paul turns here now to the front lines. Now, if that's how we pray indirectly for people, and we support people, how is that you and I then engage the culture directly? In your own places, wherever you are, as a homemaker, as a, a bus driver, whatever, whatever you do, how do you do that? And again, he covers four, well, many things, but I'm going to cut, limit it to four. First thing he says is, you have to interact with those outside the church, the exos, EXO in Greek, the exos, you engage with them with wisdom. And again, let me use John Piper, because in the same talk about this passage about the wartime, he says this, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feeling for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. And so it's incredibly, it's really discernment. The wisdom and discernment are, are close kins, especially in the book of Acts, which we're going to talk about in the fall. And he said, and again, I'll just steal this right from Piper. He says there's basically four ways you get wisdom, okay? And I'll just steal it because it was, I can't improve. One, meditate on scripture. You have to meditate, meaning think about it, read it, study it, talk about it. Scripture. Meditate in the biblical sense, not in the Eastern Om sense, please. Okay? Think it, mess it, dwell, it gets, get deep into you. Second thing, you pray. It's James 1.5. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So you pray for wisdom. Third, have sound counselors around you. The book of Proverbs is so replete with this instruction, I don't need to quote it. Get people around you who are wise. And by wise, I mean, who are those people in your life and that you know, or if you don't know them yet, get, to, get with them here at the church because there's many here who understand how to apply scripture to, to the world. Who, you know those people in your life who seem to always make the right godly decision and they make it look so easy? Those are the people you want to get around because they help. And the last thing is practice. Hebrews 5.14, I don't think it's going to be on the screen, but here's what it says. Solid food is for the mature, for those, here it is, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You must practice. Fail if you have to. But practice being a Christian, applying wisdom. And trust me, nothing teaches you what wisdom is like by exercising something that is not wisdom. It'll teach you quickly. So, Wisdom, that's one way we interact with people. We have to always be thinking, how would God interact? How does God interact with these people? Not with how I want to out of my emotion. Second, urgency. Paul says, making the best use of the time. And that word for the best use, making the best use, is the word in Greek for uh, redeem, that he talks about how Christ redeemed us. It means to buy. So it means to see the time as finite, and you buy it up like a bargain and use it well. So buy up the time. Don't waste it. And we've just heard today one of the reasons. The time is short. Buy up that time and use it incredibly well because you don't want to miss, a, miss chances. And one of the, probably the, it's an atheist who says this, but he, he challenges the church, and I, I have to respect this man. Penn Jillette is a magician. 
known for being an atheist, but at one point he talks about how he, um, a, a, a Christian approached him, I think it was in Las Vegas, and he said, the guy gave me a Bible, and he wrote in it some, you know, hey, here's some passages to read or whatever. And in an interview, Pendulette said, you know, I don't believe, and his, his, urgent, his, 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 sorry, his sincerity doesn't make me believe. However, he says, I don't, I'm not angry at the man. I think he should be sharing the gospel with me if he thinks it's true. And no atheist, he says, should be angry. And here is specifically what he says. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, and I'll explain this part, and this is more important than that. And what he means is, what is the gospel, if it's true, he says, he says, I don't believe it, but if it's true, that's more important than you feeling socially awkward because you, you made us uncomfortable. He says, listen, if it's true, tell me it's true. I respect an evangelist, he says. I don't respect the many Christians who just go on their life and pretend like it's not a big deal, that hell is real. And he's an atheist. I don't take instruction from atheists. However, it's a proper, right critique of the church, isn't it? If we really believed it, if we really believed we had cure for cancer, wouldn't you run to the people in your life who had cancer? And if they said, hey, stop doing it, you'd say, I can't stop. They're going to die if I don't tell them. Now, you don't do that with people. Most often, we don't. And it's not meant to make you feel guilty. It's meant to fill you with a sense of, this is real. It's a war. See what Piper was saying. This walkie-talkie is for war. It's not an intercom where you say, can I have another mimosa brought up to my room, please? That's what we've made prayer. We've made prayer a domestic intercom rather than a walkie-talkie for wartime. And I think that's a fair critique. So urgency. Third thing, we directly participate with the, with the world by showing grace. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. In the ancient world, if you said someone had salty speech, it didn't mean they, cu they cussed like a sailor. Um, now it does. If you say that's salty talk, it means like, ooh. Um, but in that day, it meant make it attractive, make it tasty, make it beautiful. And so Paul is saying, whatever you do, try to be attractive in how you do it. And he, he mentions this again when, in 2 Timothy when he urges people not to get involved in stupid debates. It is the word stupid. In fact, this is, it's, it's hard for me because I like debates. Um, and when he says, if you do this, you're a fool. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. But Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Boy, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists in this church. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, and I'm not immune to it. Because the world is conspiratorial. Psalm says it. Why do the nations conspire? So we know the world is miserable. But our call is not to, to, do, to engage these fools. It's to do something different. Listen to what Paul says. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You and I are to be winsome. Avoid the arguments. Why do you have to win an argument? The battle's won. You know, my kids often say things like, um, I'm the best to one another, the boys, right? They like to compete. I'm the best, I'm going to show you. And I often tell them, you know, the best athletes in the world never have to say they're the best because other people say it for them. 
Just do your job. You don't need to enter every argument. If you think, like, if I don't speak up, I'm going to lose something, you are not fighting the war as the head HQ, right? The war has been won. You don't need to fight the battle all the time. And this is where wisdom and discernment come in. Sometimes it's right to put our foot in the door. We should be fighting and standing up for justice and for the gospel and for truth, for sure. But a lot of the talk, social media, Christians, stop using social media like the world does. Stop it. You're not making anything better. Who has ever been converted by watching a video of one guy yell at another guy and do it better? Who? Who, I've never seen anyone ever say, I was converted because I watched the video where a leading conservative commentator shot down an abortions, a pro-choice pro person. No one ever says, boy, I, I was transformed by that. No, come on, grace. We don't need to fight that battle. Christ has won it. Be, be wise. The last thing, attention. When he says at the very end that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is where sometimes the church has big, massive programs and we can get confused. We think that the purpose is to hit as many as possible, right? The atomic bomb rather than the sniper. That's bad. That talks about death. So I don't love that. Just scratch that part out. But the idea is each individual comes differently. I cannot... I remember I was talking to somebody recently about this, um, asking, hey, when somebody asks me about the question of suffering, how do I answer? And I love apologetics. We can answer those questions. But the reason that person asked you and not Carl's, because God knows you're the one who needs to say that. Because maybe they don't need an academic response. Maybe they need it to come from you. And so you and I need to take each individual and realize they come from a separate world, their own world, their own history. And they all have a ball. Of, imagine your life is a ball of yarn that has been all tangled up with the good, bad, ugly, the, the way it's Father's Day. How many people have had miserable fathers? All of this baggage... And to say I have one way that's going to reach all of the different balls of yarn is just ridiculous. God sends individuals out and meets you with individual one-on-ones with people, and you have to be wise and gracious and culturally sensitive and loving and prayerful to know how do I meet that one person with the gospel? How do I meet the intellectual, the insecure, the addict, the abused, the ex-religious, the young, the old, the immigrant, the sexually, the one structurally, uh, str- struggling with gender dysphoria? How do I meet each person? That doesn't mean you have to be brilliant in all areas, but it does mean you need to be praying, sensitive, and gracious with people. And we should care. Jonah, we're going to preach Jonah in the summer. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? The word persons is atoms. 25,000 atoms, people he created from the dirt. 120,000 of them. Shouldn't I love them? They don't know their right hand from their left. God loves them. We should as well. So I'll close here. Christians, we are to engage the world indirectly through prayer by, by praying for the conversion of others through the faithful workers God has put. That means not just the formal ones, but also each of us as we engage. But we're also to know how to engage the outsiders. Let's take it seriously. How do we engage the world? Skeptics. When skeptics say to me, hey, believe what you want, but you shouldn't evangelize. I not only will tell them what Penn Gillette said, but I'll say this. If you tell a Christian not to evangelize, you're telling them not to be a Christian. You're basically saying, don't be a Christian. And even worse than that, logically you've made a big error because what you're doing is evangelizing them. You're just telling the Christian, hey, you should accept my worldview that says that proselytizing is bad. So, hey, you're evangelizing me. We are called to do it. If you're a skeptic, understand that we're, called, we're terrible at it. 
We're sometimes mean. We're sometimes divisive and negative. But we're called to preach this grace of eternal hope with you. And so we're going to screw it up at times, but please don't reject the great message for the messenger's sake. Look to the one who gave the message, the one who on the cross died for you, doing what you could never do so that you could get everything he deserved. He died the the death you deserve so you can get the reward he deserved. That's the gospel. And you're going to find all the answers to your questions, why life is hard, why people die, why you lose your job, why everything, pick a thing. All the answers are in Christ. No other answers anywhere but in him. Let's pray.